Hello, okay. welcome to the podcast. My name is Chris Hall. This is the NDIS Peak Provider Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of having Joanne Hewitt on with me. Now, Joanne um, is the CEO of Achieve Australia. Um, and Achieve Australia is one of the top 25 organizations in Australia in terms of disability uh, supports and the various things that they do. Um, so today we're going to have a deep and meaningful conversation about strategy, leadership, um, and the philosophy of what you know the, the industry is meant to be and is about. So Joanne, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much, Chris, and thanks for inviting me. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. So look, I, I like to go straight in there with the very meaningful questions. So, um, you know, in, in I'll start off with this one. Um, in my 12 years of being a business owner myself, um, there have been times where I've deviated from my core business. And I learned that lesson uh, early on. So that, you know, basically in my experience, any time that I'd deviate too much from the core, it was almost like a rubber band. It would snap back and give a bit of recall and maybe a little bit of whiplash. Um, so, so here's my question for you. In the context of, you know, Achieve Australia, you do so much, right? You've got a very a broad scope. Um, it's at scale. Um, and in the context of doing so much, what would you say is the core of Achieve Australia's business? Look, I think that's um, a really good question in this environment um, because I think, you know, when the NDIs came in, there was a tendency for organisations to jump in and say, we just need to do more of lots of things so that we can um, remain viable. And, um, you know, lots of people went into some pretty bizarre things, I have to say. Um, Achieve Australia does really focus in on delivering support services to people with disability and the core of our services are NDIS-related services, so we don't have any um, other bits and pieces hanging off. But, you know, nonetheless, there are a range of um, ways that we support um, people. Our largest footprint, in fact, 80% of our service delivery is delivering supports to people living at home. So whether they're living in specialist disability accommodation, um, and that ranges from people in um, apartment living as well as in group homes in freestanding houses and villas. Um, but 80% of that that support is around people who are actually living at home, whether um, by themselves or in a shared environment. Mm. Um, whilst we support people with a range of disability types, we also have a particular expertise in supporting people with really complex needs, um, including people with significant physical and mental health conditions, and particularly people approaching the end of their lives. Many of the people that we support are either, um, you know, getting older or um, often people who have lived in institutions for a lot of their lives. And so um, with that comes some significant health issues. Um, and, and young people who have really um, such significant and complex health conditions that their life is um, limited. So that's a particular area of expertise that we've developed and that is really at the core of our services. Okay. And to complement our extensive team for support workers, we also have a large cohort of registered nurses with yep. specific expertise in supporting people with disability. And so that assists with ensuring that people still, um, you know, remain in the community, live good lives and don't have to go in and out of hospital or stay for long extended periods of time in hospital, but can get their right um, health care um, in the right setting. Exactly. It's all about competencies, right? So, you know, the RN angle can can support, for example, module one and complex care, um, you know, understanding complex mental health conditions, you know, the psychosocial piece, of course, there's competencies on restrictive practice where applicable, you know, it all comes Absolutely. together, right? Um yeah. and 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 the uh 
the the distinction of you know primarily helping people at home of course that can span sda um it can be people's own mm -hmm. personal homes and personal care activities um and and it does um it could but i want to ask do, do you you know what what what's the relativity of for example supported independent living inside of that mix because you've got all three sort of areas that you can help people in in a home environment right yeah for sure and look the bulk of our um our funding mm. um envelope comes from or, or you know the people's packages actually comes from supported independent living yes um with a mix of uh, people who are on independent living options packages and other people who might have drop-in support kind of um in their package um but the bulk of it is supported independent living but once again people uh you know we support people in say a one-bedroom apartment who have a, a sill package um that might even have some shared supports in there but we can support them because we have other people living in that complex who um who also have um, packages mm. there's some of, there's some of the kind of the the medium size providers that you know i consult with i see sometimes a trend which is an interesting one on the SDA side to not always go into developing the properties themselves, but to collaborate with other SDA providers. And when you compare it to SIL, like as a smaller business owner, for example, there's, there's sometimes a case to be made to say, gosh, I can, I can collaborate with the SDA provider because they get what they get. And then for us as a company, we de-risk relative to SIL because essentially for, for want of a better word, the rent's taken care of kind of thing. Like there's not as much risk in terms of property ownership or, you know, do you have to rent out sell properties, et cetera. Just out of interest on that kind of angle of things, do you have any comments on that? And do you, do you take an attitude? I certainly do. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, I'm yes. intrigued to kind of like, what's your approach to that? Uh, so at Achieve Australia, we've taken the view for a long time that um, that people with disability need to, live like most people and not, um, you know, have their care provided by the person who owns their house. Mm -hmm. And um, so about four years ago, four or five years ago, we actually separated our um, SDA from SIL and we sold our the properties that we owned and okay. transferred the management of the, the um, other properties to SDA providers. We actually went into partnership with uh, a... Um, commercial provider of um, a, a commercial property developer, left field social housing, okay. um, to set up Inclusive Housing Australia, which mm -hmm. is an SDA company. Yep. Um, and so work really closely with them around some a proportion of our properties. And those are the properties that we previously owned that we sold to IHA. Um, and But we also work with other SDA providers. So we work mm. with a number of community uh, providers as well as other um, SDA providers um, who provide the accommodation mm. and we provide the care and support. So we've taken that from a philosophical yes. perspective that people, um, you know, can choose where they live, um, you know, who they live with mm -hmm. and not that not be dependent upon the care and support that they receive. I think that's really um, powerful um, and it's arguably the way it should be done. Um, I know that there can, of course, be cases maybe for the small providers where it's not as realistic, but I think philosophically it's very oh. much on point. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of what it's doing is it's uh, removing the theoretical conflict of interest as well. You know, so there's, there's mm, less absolutely. psychological pressure, for example, you know, to stay yes. to one person or not. It's all about, I think it's more meritocratic as well, isn't it? You know, basically, you know, do you want to use Achieve Australia's um, supports? Well, meritocracy will decide that, i.e. focus on doing a great job on support. Um, sure, yeah. yeah. And look, it's not without its challenges. And sure. uh, yeah. But, you know, we... 
we make sure that we remain um, very, you know, Mm. collegiate with our SDA providers and, you know, work in partnership with them. Mm. Um, But, you know, we're agnostic as to who provides the SDA um, in the same way as we expect that the SDA provider is agnostic as to who provides SIL because that is really the um, choice of the participant. Absolutely. I think a few years ago there used to be a bit more um, informal like oh this is our preferred sill provider for example that the sda company might make that statement but i'm glad mm. to see there seems to be i think with the larger sda operators that that philosophical like agnostic approach um in a good way you know it's like yeah sure we collaborate with these people and these people and these people but it's your choice that's how it should be yeah and look it, it gets it it's not always um possible to separate some of that in that if yeah. you you know run a if you if you have a house where three people are sharing yeah. And their sill supports are shared. Then yes. having you can't have three sill su- providers providing that support. So it always gets um, tricky about how that works. But, I want to hear um, your point of view I, on this. Actually, that's this 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 gets my juices going. This one, Joanne. So like sill, when it comes to anything that's less than one to one or two to one, is the model broken? So what I mean by that is, as a business owner, right? There's there's I think about things of you know risk and strategy, and I and I, I when I go to I can't quite make my mind up about this as a consultant, right? So if I think about, say, a one to three instance, of course, you need that third participant for the business case to kind of work in terms of it being a sustainable model. As soon as it's even two, never mind one, like you're basically at risk of operating at a loss, right? So so that's what I mean in in the context of that question. You know, it's kind of quite, um, it's charged, but like, is it... Is it a broken model? So what I mean by that even further is that, again, philosophical question, most SIL plans, well, not all of them, are agency managed, right? So you've got the agency paying the bills, um, and that's great. Um, But does there need to be better coordination, perhaps at the the scheme level, to say, not not guarantee providers would get, say, three participants in one house, but but, but a, a bit more, you know, yeah, coordination there because otherwise it, it yeah look you know you're absolutely failure. right i mean yeah. I, you know i always hesitate to say something broken because um sure, there, sure. there are no doubt challenges <laughs> with sill yeah and part of the challenge is that um well the reputation it's gained and that's really um you know by virtue of how it's been funded so mm-hmm. um people coming into the scheme have often been um and it depends on your planner uh, often been inappropriately placed in in sill settings because they might have um, you know requests that um, that you know go above and beyond um, what the planner might think is reasonable, and so forced into a sill environment where they've got to share supports. Now, having said that, you know it's not realistic to expect that everybody's going to get twenty four hour a day, seven day a week um, supports in the home where they want it when they want it because it just there's not enough money anywhere to do that it's not realistic but you know still has often been the blunt instrument that um that people go to and the market's not mature enough yet to actually look at how that's going to work for everyone not mm. just the traditional cohort in still so so that's one issue um the other issue i guess is that because it's an individualized system mm-hmm. so the problem is it's 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 together, and then the other problem is it's funded individually. Yes. So people are funded for their particular needs. So we've had situations where you know there's um, 
there's three people living in a house and two people require over, overnight supports and um, one person um, doesn't require overnight support. So the agency in their wisdom will fund the two people for a third each and then the other person doesn't get any funding. And so we've then got to pay the other third because you can't get two thirds of a person to work overnight. Okay. And those sorts of things come up all the time, that um, that coordination around how the how the whole fits together mm. um, and then then how the individuals get the support they need and make those choices individually. So it's it's a tricky equation and there needs to be much more coordination about how that works. Mm. And to your point earlier, you know, if somebody leaves or passes away and there's a, a vacancy for a period of time, then um, how does the provider actually, uh, you know, keep that service going mm -hmm. for the two people who are still only funded on, on a three-to-one equation. Exactly. So it does get very challenging. In big organisations, we just tend to wear it. And mm. I think the, the agency sort of relies on the fact that we do, although, you know, when, when it comes to when we start talking about viability of organisations, I know that, mm. um, you know, most organisations are really struggling and suffering losses every year, and particularly mm. the big silk providers. Um, so, you know, it's it, we're covering it, um, but because we do, because we have to, because we need to, it's a duty of care to the people we support and to our staff to make sure that we've got the right staffing model in place. Correct, correct. And and so, yeah, I mean, to, to the, as you've just perfectly said, like the, it's, it's the context of the coordination piece and the impact on business case for provider and if indirectly, but very directly, uh, the livelihood of the other two participants in the one to three mm. example like we, we shouldn't threaten their livelihood because of things changing so mm. you know there's, there's that there's also the you know there's also the interesting dynamic that you can have the one to three thing for the sill piece but then community participation for the same participant could be one-to-one -one, right so then that mm. takes me down the rabbit hole of um you know different organizations and sometimes public guardians etc and court support coordinators they will make a statement that it's a conflict of interest for the SIL and the CP to be done by the same provider. And on one hand, I don't disagree with that. I get it. Um, but in the instance where it's one to three, sometimes effectively what that one-to-one -one piece does is it helps subsidize and uh, mitigate the impact of the problems we're just talking about. So, so, you know, again, like if you think about, <clears throat> it's not just coordination, it's almost philosophy. Because if you go to say the oh. New South Wales Public Trustee and Guardian, if they're, if they're always saying, nope, for someone that's under, under guardianship, nope, you can't do the CP as well, that, again, could, in principle, you know, threaten um, viability, couldn't it? Um, oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, I, I fall in the middle somewhere there too because mm. I absolutely think that, you know, we as, as organisations have to actually be thinking about those conflict of interest all the time yes. and have to be thinking about how do we not capture people in that service environment and make them dependent upon us because it's so easy to do. And mm -hmm. and we do it unconsciously. It's not yeah. that people are out there trying to do it. Some people are, but you know, trying to do it purposefully, but it happens unconsciously. And and because um people in in an environment where um you know they're not used to shopping around and they're not they're, they're not exposed to other service providers, then it's very easy for them to say, oh I'll just take you. Mm -hmm. um, because I know you and I like you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's room for people to actually do that. And and sometimes the circumstances lend itself to it. it's much better for this um, that service provider to provide, be providing the CP. So I think there's got to be some flexibility in the system. 
mm-hmm. and there's got to be, but there's got to be external oversight to make sure that that's not um, about organisations just capturing people and over-servicing them. Correct. Yep. No. Well said. Well said. It's not an easy answer at all. Um, yeah. Okay. So I want to go to heritage here for a second. So Achieve Australia has been going since 1952. It's amazing. Um, so how do you incorporate, I guess, the the benefits of that heritage into your value proposition? Yeah, look, Chris, I think that's a really important thing to be, you know, acknowledging and talking about constantly in, in all of our organisations. Achieve Australia, like many um, disability organisations, was started off in the 50s in that period of time where parents usually uh, were kicking back on the social policy that meant that you had to put your kids with disability into care and go off and forget about them and have other children. Never worked, but, you know, that's what that's what people were asked to do. And people, of course, started to question that and, and um, you know, raised money themselves to actually set up organisations like ours to make sure that their kids could actually live in the community, be part of their families, be part of, um, you know, regular society. And I guess that's, that's what I hold dear, that that mm. was the... Um, the, the it, it might have been done in a different way to what we do it now. You know, we, we might have put people in groups of 30 and then we moved to groups of six and and now people say groups of six are dreadful. Mm. Um, but everybody was doing the the next iteration of what was best and and you know how how we can move people into the community. And so keeping that legacy alive around what was yeah. the intent? Mm. The intent was for people with disability to take their rightful place, to have choice, to have connection with their community and family. And that's what drives, um, you know, the work that we do every day. Mm. That, that um, you know, we I launched my new strategic plan yesterday and um, and the thing I always talk about is, that, you know, we talk about inclusion and it's a really overused word. Mm-hmm. And people often think that inclusion means you go out, you know, you're there basically. If you, if you, if you let into the club, um, you know, you um, you are included. Well, that's not what inclusion really means. Inclusion mm. is about having that experience of belonging. I agree. So you're not just yeah. sitting around the kitchen table, but everybody's talking about you rather than to you. Um, Very much you're not so. just yes. sitting at the club with your support worker in the corner, but you're actually doing the things that you love doing with the people that you enjoy doing it with. hundred percent. That is so close to my heart my son's autistic and so therefore we'll have a you know some things that he needs right whether it be sensory overload in certain situations Mm -hmm. so like I have such a deep appreciation for that now as a father um and you know I'm gonna make myself cry in a second (laughs) like what it means to me (laughs) is literally that pure acceptance of like if things are too loud for him adjust that accommodate that don't challenge it you would never never make him wrong for that or any of the any you know the things that can happen unconsciously when you know maybe it's other people even even friends in your life they, they, there's, there's an education piece there isn't there yeah. like, you know being truly inclusive there means actually probably getting people to have an understanding of just what it means so therefore there there is that immediate acceptance rather than a oh what's going on is, hmm. is he okay like, your you know, child. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so i mean you know I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of almost a comment on. Um, I'm not saying things are done badly, but like you know, I think what, what, what the good news is is that we've come so far since the 50s, right? So, um, but, but broadly, you know, the rest of society, so to speak, um, I, I hope over time we'll just continue to get better 
um, at that. So it's definitely what, what yeah. we do, yeah. you know, as organizations. Yeah. Um, and then it's the broad ecosystem, isn't it? Yeah. And look, I think that legacy question is so important because, mm. you know, at the moment there's um, there's a lot of rhetoric around about, you know, um, living in a one-bedroom apartment, good, um, you know, living in a SIL group home, bad, mm. shocking. You know, mm. there's awful mm. service providers are um, keeping people in these group homes and I, I'm no apologist for group homes. But, you know, we've got to say, okay, there, there's always a continuum about how things move and change. And there are better options for people around how they live and where they live. And, and we've got to get housing right for people with disability and care and support right for people with disability. Mm-hmm. But it's not a good, bad conundrum. It's a how do we continue to um, make things more inclusive, to actually get better quality housing for people, get more choice about who, who you live with, not everybody wants to or or it's in their interest to live in a one-bedroom apartment. You know, there, mm-hmm. there are people for whom living with the friends that they've lived with for all of their lives it yeah. is is a great thing and, yeah. and it's what they want to do and they grieve if they're not with those friends. They're right. their family. So, you know, you've got to have that balance and you you've got to actually say, okay, that, you know, we can look back and say institutions were bad and I worked in institutions and they were not very nice places to, to live or work. Um, and, and you know, I've worked in some group homes that were awful and I've worked mm-hmm. in some group homes that were fabulous, that people mm-hmm. lived great lives and, you know, were really had great choice and still do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's a question of honouring that legacy and saying, but, you know, how do we, how do we keep moving? How do we keep yes. moving forward and keep actually changing things for people so that life keeps getting better? Absolutely right. I love that. Um, and, and there are so many good news stories, too, in the sense of I've just completed a project. Um, I'm completing a project currently for a national support coordination company. And when we did mm-hmm. an analysis of the national market, we made the observation that for the 19 to 24 um, year old young adult category, um, that has, I think, it was something like 30 or 40 percent higher support coordination budgets on average. Um, and that, to me, is a good news story because for the for young people transitioning into adulthood, um, what that means is that there's there's the space for things like the individualized living option ILO mm. thing mm. that speaks mm. to what we just talked about. You know, so so yeah, I think there's yeah, you know, honestly, like people like like Bill Shorten, what wonderful people. Like there's there's a lot of people doing good things. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. You got to kind of know what you're actually talking about. You know, um, basically to to really comment. Um, on on how things are going in the industry because I think that unfortunately just like any classical news story if you see something in the paper it's typically negative and then for people that don't mm-hmm. understand the NDIS they'll go oh there's so many people doing the rip-offs and you know do they really have a disability yeah. there's a lot of ignorance you know a lot of lack of knowledge yeah um, and and you know I think too that you know there's no doubt that um, that some people are really struggling and that you know particularly um, in the last several years the way things have been implemented it means a lot of people have had to focus on the bad things about their life and mm-hmm. and there's been this scramble to get the biggest package you can and hang on to it as long as you can which is mm-hmm. really not what the intent of the ndis was about in the first place it was really about people having some aspiration and looking at what do you need here and now to to live your best life and that that can flex up and flex down throughout your life and that's sort of not the way things are at the moment Mm. but we also lose sight of the really good news stories Mm -hmm. and i i know getting in taxis often you know struck up conversations with the taxi drivers and i saw that ndis you know what do you think about it like you know is it Mm -hmm. really 
doing any good. And I think people lose sight of the fact that there are people who have had amazing transformative experiences with having, um, you know, access to the NDIS. Mm -hmm. And that there are probably more of those people than there are of the ones who are really struggling. Mm -hmm. It doesn't negate the fact that we absolutely have to fix the things that are going wrong and that we have to make sure that people who are not getting what they need are actually getting what they need. But we need to hang on to the fact that it is, it really is the greatest scheme in the world. We just need to get it right and fix some of the teething problems. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I've been the chairman of a charity myself and, um, you know, so I've been in the not-for-profit sector and side of things. Um, I'm going to ask an interesting question. What are the dangers of running a not-for-profit organisation? Dangers. Mm. Okay. I think your key challenges, and we started this conversation at the beginning, is around staying true to your purpose. Okay. Because it's so easy to... um, it's so easy to get off track. It's easy to get off track around, you know, what you're doing and and go off on bandwagons, whether that's, you know, providing different kinds of services. I mean, I've talked to some of my colleagues who run unpacking businesses that have nothing to do with, um, you know, people with disability or or advancing the cause of disability because somebody in their history decided that they're going to make some money from that. Um, And and there's a real danger, um, particularly in the current economic environment to become very transactional in mm. in what we do. And particularly because of the way things are funded, that, um, that you know, you you do only get a, a finite amount of um, funding and it's got to be spent on that direct hour of service delivery, which is a good thing, but it also means that you don't have any wriggle room mm-hmm. so that, um, that, you know, if you get, 20 hours worth of support coordination per year, you only provide 20 hours of support coordination per year. So if the person needs more, they've got to go back through the plan funding cycle and, and you know, it becomes really tricky. Whereas, um, you know, previously we were able to do a bit of um, swings and roundabouts, I suppose. That meant that a lot of people missed out. So I'm not saying that was a better way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a danger, actually, to um, in, in the transactional nature of the service is not to actually uh, at the beginning look at, so what priority am I going to focus on? How am I going to really make the best use of that 20 hours, to, to take that example? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we, we jump into um, service delivery and we deliver the 20 hours and then realise, oh, whoops, um, you know, there's something else that needs to be done or there's something that was more important that we should have been focused on. So I think we we have to actually, um, you know, really stand back and work out as organisations how mm-hmm. we're going to deliver services in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we can be lobbying to, you know, make changes and to to do different things. But you know, it is what it is. So we've actually got to make sure that we continue to deliver on our mission. I think is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, within that context. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Um. Now, in terms of advocacy and disability, right, um, what do you think are the biggest challenges but also opportunities for advocacy in the NDIS? Yeah, look, I think um, one of the challenges at the moment in terms of advocacy is is the perception, and I, I believe it's only a perception, that, um, that you know, somehow, and, and it's particular to big providers, and I'm, I, you know, sometimes feel a little um, sensitive about this, that somehow, because of the rhetoric in the in the sector and in the media and everything else, that um, you know, there's there's you mentioned it before, rhetoric about fraud, mm. about ripoffs, mm. about you know, 
and particularly when people from uh, see the size of um, packages perhaps that big providers like us are receiving and they think oh that's an awful lot of money you know that's you, you um hundred million dollar organization you must you know your ceo must drive a mercedes and mm. you know travel business class i can assure you i don't do either of those things um and and i think you know there there can be a and rightfully so a perception from people with disability that somehow large service providers are just making money and not really servicing the needs of their clients and so therefore we all want the same things in general mm -hmm. and so trying to work together and be a cohesive voice i think is really really important because when um when you've got different interests uh actually going at it from different perspectives and not actually talking in the same language or um, mm. criticising each other or whatever, then that's really easy for governments to go, you know, we'll just make our own mind up because nobody's, or, or they'll take the, the view of one particular party. And so I think it's really critical that we get back to what we had and, you know, how we started the NDIS was that service providers actually work really closely with people with disability and actually rallied and galvanised the people that we were supporting into um, lobbying for the NDIS. And there was mm. this cohesive message about this is what's going to work and this is how it's going to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And somehow there's almost been a wedge driven through that to the point where, um, you know, and I know that, you know, having conversations with other service providers, we go, oh, please, we just want to work with you and be really happy and nice and, um, and you know, not trying to rip anybody off. Mm. So I think that, you know, bringing back the, the disability advocacy groups and the service providers to talk the same language and to and to really get what you know we all want really because mm. we want the same thing. Yeah, correct, and so, and that speaks to values and philosophy, etc. And it's almost like a level of consciousness, right? So if you if you have a, de a dog eat dog mentality and a competitive mentality or a conflicting one, um, it's, it's almost energetic. You're going to attract that. You're going to look for it. You're going to spot it. You're going to have your boxing gloves on and think that it's a big war. And I'm not saying that things don't happen. Like it's true, unfortunately, that you know people can get poached from one place to another. Oh, unethical, unethical things yeah. do happen. But, yes, they do. But if you if you elevate yourself, it's like I think I feel like what you do is you start to associate with almost a community of fellow providers and other organisations that do it in arguably the right way. Um, and then it yeah. kind of becomes a non-issue, I think, when you operate at that. I'm going to use the word frequency. Yeah, it's literally yeah and look, I have to say yeah. there's movement at the moment. You know, yesterday I attended the Australian Disability Dialogue, which has been sponsored by the Alliance 20 and, and um, you know, working with some really key advocates and um, you know, people with disability. And yeah. that was a fantastic discussion about, mm -hmm. you know, what to do in housing and how, um, how we might solve the housing problem for people with disability. And, you know, that more of that kind of things, the way we can all... Be on the same page, work together, and um, you know, because that's what's going to work. Because that's mm -hmm. you know that'll be listened to. If you if you get if you get that single proposition, I think that um, that you know all stakeholders buy into, then that's what government listens to. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, now I want to hear an inspiring story. Um, can you tell me any you know inspiring stories from what Achieve Australia has done in terms of? the impact that you've had on an individual life and, and the role that you played to transform, you know, the outcomes that you got to, like, what, what can you tell me some, you know, it's time to mention people's actual names, but like, can you give no, us no, no, some, of course give us some ideas, yeah. you know, about 
that kind of stuff. Yeah, look, I could probably story. tell you many, many, but yes. um, one that springs to mind at the moment is a person who, um, you know, had acquired a disability as an adult and so, you know, had a family, um, but, you know, was in hospital for a long, long time in rehab and um, and was not able to go home, you know, right. because of the extent of that person's disability. You know, she she really requires 24-7 um, monitoring, lots of health intervention, um, you know, her family were really struggling and, and wondering what was going to happen. She spent an awful lot of time in hospital, like years, a couple of years. Wow. Wow. Um, so she's now moved into an apartment mm -hmm. and um, so is living on her own in that apartment, mm -hmm. but there are other apartments in the building. It's not an apartment block just for people with disabilities, a big apartment block with, um, you know, 400 um, apartments in the block, so... Um, similar to the one that I live in, mm. um, and um, but there are 22 of those apartments within that block that actually um, are supported by Achieve Australia. Right. So she has access to that 24-7 care without somebody living in a lounge room. Yes. And so she's able to have all the care she requires. She's able to have her um, kids stay overnight. She's able to go down to the shops when she needs to and somebody knows that she's gone and knows, you know, she's taken too long, should I check that she's okay, you know, can mm. ring her on a mobile phone and make sure she's okay because she does have some difficulties um, even in the community. And so after even a short few months, she's mm. um, living an amazing life and, you know, a hubby comes to, to stay and the family are together. They're not living together but they're, they that's an extension of their family home, I guess, now. Um, but she also has that care and support wrapped around her mm. and other people um, close by that mm. she can actually, um, you know, call and have within a moment's notice somebody, you know, coming in and supporting her. Love that. Yeah, so that's that's just one. And we've, we also support another young woman who, um, who had a young baby, you know, a really mm. tiny baby and um, was separated from that child because of her acquired disability and managed to get custody of the child and um mm. so now we support mum to be at home um you know looking after her bub and, and you know things like that mm -hmm. it's just amazing yeah i love that i love that they give that both of those stories give me goosebumps um yeah that's wonderful yeah and look it's not just and i think because we've got um mm. access to nursing support so it's not that we mm. have nurses in there every day all day mm. every day but we have uh, you know, in a in an environment like that, we would have a nurse on site twenty four hours a day who can be, you know, supervising catheter changes and and doing those sort of nursing type duties, but not not being there all the time, not having to ring somebody and order that in advance. You know, they can deal with emergency as that as it occurs. So we've got a good clinical back um, backstop, I guess, in exactly. in all of those places. I love yeah. that because that's the balance. It's a great story about you know getting someone into connected with the family and community, but also striking the balance between empowering the individual and also not invading on the personal space like it's a wonderful thing now, every, everyone everyone's got their own why i suppose as to why they're in the ndis but for me that reminds me of my cousin in the uk who has down syndrome and, and he was always in a group environment a group home and i saw you know i saw better versions and worse versions and when i saw the worst versions it's kind of like it gets me going, you know. I'm like, oh, I just want it to be done better, you know. So it's, it's mm, great to hear done better stories. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, now going back to your experience, um, you were the 
operational um, you know, leader of uh, Mission Australia. Um, so just out of interest, I know we're kind of progressing through different stages of your career now, but that was you know, um, a few organizations back. Um, just out of interest, though, since you've got that background, do you take any particular operationally more focused lens in the way that you lead Achieve Australia? Yeah, look, I, I actually started off my career as a social educator in okay. one of the very first group homes in Australia, you know, yeah. and, and that was a group of nuns who had met Wolfensberger and um, and decided oh, wow. to close their their um, boarding school and, and start up some group homes and really was the cutting edge of, um, of disability support in those days. And so I started off my career whilst I was putting myself through uni looking after six kids like you'd never no mobile phone you know you had six mm -hmm. kids and myself um overnight and on weekends mm -hmm. things like that never do that to my staff these days but i loved it um and and have worked in various operational roles um mm -hmm. throughout my career and so no doubt i i do um you know take a, a great interest and um and i'm really connected to what's happening mm -hmm. Uh, for my clients and and for my staff, and really, I think that's that has really helped for me to understand when I'm making decisions or setting policy or setting new strategic directions is what's it like really um, for the person on that day to day lived experience. I think that's really important, um, and so I take a great interest, but I don't I don't dip in and I don't manage them. Uh, no. Don't really want to. Uh, you know, no, I've got some really yeah. clever, talented staff that um, that know what they're doing. And um, but, you know, I do take a very deep interest in um, making sure that the quality of our services, um, you know, are, are live up to what we say they're going to. And that's not to say that they always do. You know, there are times that I find things out and um, please explain and how are we going to fix this and how are we going to make this better? Um, so, you know, always interested to lean into that. But um You know, I think, um, as I said, you know, that, you know, I've been that person who um, who has always been aspirational about what I want for people with disabilities. And, you know, that that um, it was part of my life. My mum my had a disability and um, and I grew up not really recognising that because she just did what she did and got on with her life mm. and, um, and, you know, expected that she had things that um, tools and, and tricks that helped her live a life without um, too much support. And mm. but it really normalized disability in our lives and mm. made me see that people just need the right supports and then they can just get on with life. And that's um, you know, the aspirations that I hold for people that they, they can live the best life that they want to, whatever that looks like. Yes, exactly. Really, I love the fact that you got not just the ops, but that kind of grassroots involvement in terms of your career, because I'm sure that the benefit for the organization is that everyone doing the doing knows that there's there's a grounded in reality direction of the organization like you you've done sure. it yourself you know it's, it's great yeah and when somebody comes to me and says that'll never work and i think yeah maybe it won't right because <laughs> i remember what it's like you know and yeah. and and managing um group homes or managing services you remember what it's like and you know mm. you're you're jumping from a life and death situation to whether somebody's got their bus pass to, mm -hmm. um, you know, then having to implement some silly policy that somebody in head office has designed. So it exactly. does, um, you know, and, and I, I always want to keep um, mm. that as a focus to, so I can make sure that I'm not um, asking anybody, whether it's the, the 
um, client at the end of the day or the person who's supporting them um, to do something that's not not going to work or yeah, that's exactly. actually going to make life more complicated for them. Exactly. And um, now we're recording this in August 2023. Um, so July has just passed. We've had the price guide increase. Um, some areas did not increase. So the hmm. support coordination and plan management didn't, which is somewhat controversial. Um, but hmm. if we talk about personal care, community access, SIL, we had approximately a 5% increase in prices. Um, but the Shad's Award also matched that 5% increase as well. Oh. Um, it was 5.75. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, so, um, so, you know, quite rightly so, I get that as well because we're in an inflationary environment, right? So mm -hmm. we have one needs to, to live. Um, so my question nevertheless is, if we zone in on the price guide in particular, do you feel like the scheme has done a sufficient job to keep up with inflationary costs broadly across the market and across the scheme? Yeah, look, I, I mean, that's a complicated question mm. in that, um, that you know, there's no doubt that the bump in um, in service in prices last year, particularly for some um, some line items, was really helpful. Mm. It got a lot of organisations out of trouble. Mm. Having said that, uh, you know, most organisations and big organisations that I know um, have recorded losses um, for the past um, three or four years and that's not sustainable and they continue to record losses and so they're not anticipating that this um, financial year will be any different. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that last year, as I said, helped. This year, um, from, from my perspective, we'd done a whole lot of work on um, building sustainability We've made some shrewd um, decisions around selling our property. So we've got some good reserves um, mm. in terms of investments and we make sure that um, we invest a lot of that back into our foundation, for example, which is focused on research and innovation. So we put it all back into supporting mm. people with disability. But um, but we know that we're sustainable into the future. And I think, you know, not-for-profits certainly have to be not-for-loss. You know, you mm. can't, you can't in, live in an environment where you're, sustaining losses all the time mm -hmm. um so so i don't think it's fixed and um you know the the um that's borne out in in the the actual you know bottom lines of um most organizations particularly the big organizations some mm -hmm. of whom are facing existential threat mm -hmm. and so um the big therapy providers I know are greatly struggling because mm -hmm. um of the you know lack of uh, real um, increases in prices in therapy mm. and I know that's a fraught um, area anyway because mm. you know what you can charge as a therapy provider providing really complex um, you know expert support to someone with a complex disability mm -hmm. is the same as what the guy down the road who you know has just put up their shingle and charge and so um, that's a really uh, fraught area in, in terms of therapy prices but a lot of the big providers that um, that are focused in mainly on therapy are really struggling mm -hmm. to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. um, support coordination and plan management of course um, you know I'm I'm not sure what the political uh, I've got my theories about what all all that means, um, mm. but support coordination hasn't had a rise for some time, and so that mm. um, is is once again quite tricky. And that um, that you know providers are not that that just feeds into it becoming even more of a transactional service where you just stick to the hour, you do your thing, and I don't think that's effective. 
mm-hmm. in the longer term. Yes. So the short answer is that um, the sector is still struggling. Yes. And yes. Um, and there are, as I said, you know, serious viability issues. I think that, um, you know, on the whole, um, if you look at the um, results of the Ability Roundtable, which is a benchmarking exercise that looks at, um, you know, all the all the provi- big providers that have signed up um, and and their financial viability, mm-hmm. I think that you know it's it's a minus two point five percent on average. Some are really struggling. Others, you know, like us, have a a small margin mm-hmm. um, that that you know means that we're sustainable. Mm-hmm. But it's a year to year proposition. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's yeah. it's not an environment where th- this rhetoric that we're all making millions of dollars and um, swimming in money is is complete and utter rubbish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's um you know what you alluded to there are the various uh, microcosms. You know, so there's a microcosm of what's going on for therapies. There's a microcosm of cars, PM. You know, the sales sector, right. SDA sector. There's there's all sorts of um, challenges in each one. So you got to know what each ecosystem has going on for itself. Um, now, And I it's think, not like the old yeah. days where you had a margin yeah. in one and you could prop up the other. It doesn't yeah. work that way right. anymore yeah, right. because you've got really no margin in, in anything. Mm. And so you're not you're not sort of borrowing Peter to pay Paul, you know, borrowing off your, your mm. sill because you're spending all your money in sill. You know, we've got huge compliance costs. The, the um, overhead allocation in sill is really small mm. um, and not, um, doesn't cover all your back of house or your um, corporate costs, mm-hmm. and then when you add on the huge compliance costs that we have, mm-hmm. and so you're not making money from that, mm-hmm. and so therefore, if you've got then a, a service like support coordination, and that should sit in a completely different um, your organisation from a conflict of interest perspective, mm-hmm. but if you've got support coordination therapy or any other um, service, you, you're certainly not in a position to prop those up, and most mm-hmm. of them are making um, very, very large losses. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so let me ask you one final philosophical question. Um, mm-hmm. It's about unregistered providers, right? So I, I gosh, it's a really interesting subject too, not an easy answer, um, but basically, you know, quite rightly, choice and control is the key cornerstone of the whole scheme. Um, mm-hmm. So I absolutely agree uh, with the idea that we should be able to, as participants, be able to choose whether we go with an unregistered provider or a registered provider. Yeah. Now, having said that, um, unregistered providers are bound by the code of ethics, but registered providers go by the practice standards, which are much more rigid, etc. cetera. Um, so it's very interesting to observe that 40%, last time I read a report on this, it was 40% um, of payments are going to unregistered providers. So it's huge, absolutely huge. Mm. Um, now, th- th- there are definitely, even though everything I just said exists and is real, um, there are arguably some challenges and some limitations of, of that side of the market. So my question is, um, should there be a, a, a greater strive toward uh, registration? Um, and I'm not saying unilaterally. I'm just talking about a direction and a strive. So, yeah. Look, in the, uh, in the current regulatory environment, um, requiring every provider to be registered is is probably not realistic and, and, as you pointed out, is going to really limit choice and control. So I stand by that, um, you know, there's, there's room for unregistered providers in the market. Having said that, um, you know, there's got to be greater oversight of um, unregistered providers and there's got to be... Um, 
and I, I hesitate to say a relaxing, but a, but a change in, in the um, requirements for registered providers. Because at the moment, we can all charge the same price. Right. And, you know, registered providers have a huge impost around compliance. And, you know, I'm, I absolutely believe in um, in oversight and I believe in, you know, I'm hand on heart, will do anything that the commission asked me to report on mm-hmm. because I think it, it um, makes for better service delivery. But at the same time, the, the costs of that are huge mm-hmm. and, you know, an unregistered provider doesn't have those costs and at the same time can, um, it doesn't have the oversight that's required. So there's got to be some meeting in the middle and I think some kind of tiered arrangement there, um, you know, people had a set of standards that they had to comply with, but there was not an onerous um, requirement around um, some of those smaller unregistered providers to do the kinds of things that we necessarily have to do. We provide really complex support. So of course we have to, mm-hmm. um, you know, be open and transparent and and do all the things we have to do. Um, but there also needs to be a bit of tiered pricing, I think, in that to make sure that that um, acknowledges the extraordinary costs that a registered provider faces. Mm, exactly exactly yeah agree agree um and i think there would be a great outcome because like imagine if for example if you had some kind of extra loading that registered providers would receive to cover the compliance overhead that would be great and of course that should not come at the penalization of uh dwindling down a participant's budget maybe there needs to be you know supplementation yeah. on the plan side as well to make that yes. happen um yeah, yeah for sure fine line it's a fine line and also i know that you know the actual even the registration process gosh you know, it used to take a few months or whatever. Um, now it's so common that I'm hearing it because I, I coach people on this, like, uh, well, not on, on, not on registration, but in sales and marketing, but um, I hear the story all the time that the registration application process, even after passing audit, is like waiting 12 months yep. more. So there's a yep. such a yep. backlog. <laughs> it's crazy. And you have a team of people who are, you know, completely focused on it. It's um, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very onerous. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Well, listen, Joanne, it's been a pleasure um, having a chat with you today. I'll, I'll um, we'll wrap it up here. But um, you know, for people want that want to learn more about Achieve Australia, we'll include, of course, the show notes, uh, the links to the website. Um, right. And yeah, it's been a pleasure having a chat with you today. Um, if you found this interesting for me scaling point of view uh my business peak provider and myself chris hall we do scaling projects so that's a, mm-hmm. a brief mention to the services that we do but joanne hewitt achieve australia you are a legend it's been a pleasure to connect with you today thank you so much for sharing your deep philosophy and values on the, on the thank you so much chris it's been a great conversation good on you take care